This episode of the How to Get Your Shit Together podcast has been brought to you by my listeners, patrons, and friends. If you'd like to find out more about how you can support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash Zach P. Phillips. One of the main goals that I have with my mental state and mental health in general is to trend upwards in the sense that I want to look at my functionality, look at my physicality, look at my ability to interact with people and have it trending up. So over time, I'm getting better. And in general, that's where I'm at. And that's where I've been going. I've been able to write a bunch. I've been able to connect a bunch, train a bunch and work. I've been able to be working to a level that's been able to provide for my family for over a year and a half now. And it's it's been okay on my mental state. However, as with any trends, it's not just a straight line. It's not just I'm getting better. It, there's, there's lots of ups and downs that go up. So it's like sort of, you know, two steps up, one step down. And this, this sort of process is impacted by personal events, personal stresses, and life, life stresses and life events. So, you know, we're in the middle of the coronavirus stuff right now, and that's obviously causing a disruption to social events, to gatherings, to a whole variety of things. The problem with this is that that will obviously have an impact upon my mental state, and there's nothing I can do about these certain things. For example, my psychologist has stopped taking bookings, and I was supposed to have a have a, an appointment a couple of days ago, and it was cancelled with, like, one or two days' notice. And that's sort of happening across the board with a variety of things. I, ca- I basically can't train anymore in terms of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and that was something I did almost daily. So... With that in mind, I, I'm i obviously in a bit of a vulnerable mental state. And adding to that, I've, I've, prior to this whole thing sort of coming to a head, I was already feeling quite, quite like self-isolating or just sort of in a down state. And part of the reason was I actually put it down to sort of long-term healing but short-term pain because of that healing in the form of life triggers. So, as you know, I've had a traumatic past and some of the things that happened reverberate and to continue to pop up and I'll be fine for a while, but then it'll come back and come back stronger or differently. And it's like, I feel like there's this sort of multi-headed hydra approach that I sort of adapt to one thing and then it's sort of harder in another sense or I, I, I have to sort of struggle down another path until I get my head over that one. And then, so this is the progression towards functionality and towards mental health. But there's a lot of the time there's different things pop up. And one of those things is being triggered. And the word triggered is a bit controversial in the sense that it's used, I feel, incorrectly a lot of the time in the sense that if I disagree with you or you, me, we're not really triggering each other. There's a disagreement there. If I don't like you or you don't like me, that's not necessarily triggering each other either. It's one of these words that gets thrown around a lot, but it's sort of the act of throwing it around makes it lose its meaning. Being triggered means that you feel like the the thing that happened to you, the assault, the violence, the the fear, the the event that traumatized you in the first place is happening again in that moment. So something might happen, something might be said, there might be a smell, whatever, a trigger, quote unquote, happens. And it puts you back in that mind frame. Now, I've read a couple of books on the topic of this. Um, trauma, uh, trauma-sensitive trauma mindfulness and The Body Keeps the Score. I'll put those two links down below so you can grab yourself a copy of these books. 
but both of them talk across the similar information they and they actually sort of reference each other which is great but they basically talk about how your brain acts differently when you're triggered when you're suffering from the ptsd when you're in that mind frame the parts of the brain that light up are the same parts of the brain that light up if it was happening in the moment so to the person suffering from ptsd the person that is being triggered it actually feels like it's happening in the moment now i can relate to that personally when when i feel triggered it feels like all the stuff that happening that happened to me when i was younger is happening again part of me knows that i'm you know in a safe place wherever i am that i'm an adult that i'm am strong that i can defend myself all of these sort of things right that those people are dead <laughs> Yet, a far, far, far more significant part of me, a stronger part, a more overwhelming part, doesn't. And it just, there's this just feeling like it's happening again. And it's it's like sort of part panic attack, part depressive episode, part like sort of out of my mind, um, dissociativeness. It's, it's a mess. Now, when all that's happening, sorry, let's talk about the causes though. What, what can cause this? For me, it can be... It happens more often when I'm in a reduced mental capacity. So if I've had a stressful day at work, if I've had an argument with a friend or a family member, if uh, I'm feeling sick, if I'm sore, if I'm tired, if I'm inebriated, right? All these things sort of put my mind at a disadvantage. Um, Less spoons, less ability to cope. And then certain triggers can impact. And this could be simple phrases. It could be implications. It could be a feeling. It could be... A word, and it, it, you know, I have a rough idea of who and what triggers me, but it changes and it catches me unaware. And you know, I'll be talking with friends or people randomly, and I'll feel it happening, and I'm like, "Oh shit!" When I know that happens, I have to take steps to just basically run because I feel so vulnerable and exposed. And when it does happen, it's it's hard because the people around me see me struggling and they're like, let's talk about it. And whilst I do agree that talking about things is vital, you know, communication with people in general, you know, honest and open communication as I talk about, but also, you know, when you're struggling, talking is important. In the in the moment of when I'm triggered, it's very hard to talk. It's like, it's like there's a clamp over my mouth. It's like I don't want to risk talking because I can't handle what's going on in my mind, let alone the social implications of what I'm talking about, what I'm saying, particularly if it's with the person who's quote-unquote triggered me. They didn't mean it, but I don't have the capacity in that moment to explain to that person that the thing that they did unintentionally is causing me to feel like I'm being assaulted right now, right? That's a hard That's a hard conversation to have. It's one that I have had and am forced, unfortunately, to have repeatedly with people because it's like, they will do things that do trigger me unintentionally. And I know it's unintentional, but in the moment I'm impacted. So do you see how there's this trap? All of that creates this absolute cloud of anxiety and rumination and negativity and feelings, and it just becomes overwhelming. Um, when it happens, I have an absolute desire to get inebriated in some capacity, to punch a wall out, to smack my head against a wall, to cut myself, to kill myself. It's, it's intense. I just want it to end because I feel like it's constantly happening. And what a lot of people do is they, they they think that talking it out and talking through will help. And it does, but not in that moment. In that moment of I'm being triggered, I feel like the best help is love and compassion. 
love and compassion, understanding, telling me it'll be okay, helping me to pull out of whatever situation is causing the problems, helping me to just work through it, not expecting me to explain it, not expecting me to be able to understand it even. Obviously, you know, as you can tell, I've got a fairly introspective mind. I can sort of read my own mind fairly well. Um, I don't know if other people could do that or not or how much they do it, but I, I have a good read on myself and this is why I sort of share it. However, in those moments, you know, I've sort of trained people to know that I can sort of talk through my emotions fairly logically. But the problem is, is that in those moments, I can't. So now what I'm doing is I'm trying to say, hey, when I'm triggered, it's like the assault, the the the, the victimization, whatever happened to me, it's like that's happening now. So if, if I came to you and said, hey, like a new thing happened to me, this happened to me just now, you you would be talking to me differently. You'd be calming me down. You'd be consoling me. You wouldn't be asking me to explain through the logical process of it, right? Because in my brain, it is happening right now. It's it's very hard to not not feel an emotional or an aggressive outburst at the people close to me because oftentimes, unwillingly, they will say or do things that perpetuate the mental state and that makes it worse and I just want it to end. So it's it's a hard battle to to not project aggression outwardly. It's not their fault, not at all. Um but they're the ones I need to keep to help keep me safe in that moment. And when they don't, and once again they can't be expected to because they don't know. I don't even know. I feel that anger because it's like I feel like I'm 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 just I'm, I'm afraid I'm scared I'm worried. It's challenging. It's tough. There's it's 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 a battle to help people in my life understand what's happening and then in the moment be able to explain it. Because like I said, I feel very trapped because my words shut down. The ability for me to speak in that moment goes. But it's in that moment that it's the most confusing for other people, which is why I take measures to talk to them, like I'm talking to you now, and talk them through and answer their questions when I'm in an okay mental state and being like, hey, when this happens, I'm going to say to you, hey, I'm feeling triggered right now. That might be all I can get out. I I might be... You know, like that's might be all I can say to you. I, I will struggle in the moment to express to you the impact that it's having on me. I'll struggle to share my inner thoughts. I'll struggle to say much of anything. In fact, you might ask me if I'm okay and I might say yes. I might say I'm triggered and then I might say, you're okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Because I can't deal with the thought of having to explain to you that I'm not okay. I need you to understand that when I'm saying I'm triggered, that's like crisis stations. That's what this means. That means X, Y, Z, and it means I need from you from this. It also means that after that, if I say that to you, my window of tolerance for the day drops. Because the other thing that happens is it's not it's not like I'm triggered and then the day's done. I'll do self-care, I'll you know meditate, I'll exercise, I'll do a whole variety of things to get myself back up. Unfortunately, the problem with that is, is that I then project like I'm okay, right? Because Because I sort of am getting better than I was. I'm not in, I'm no longer in that crisis state. I'm no longer currently triggered, but unfortunately my window of tolerance, and I'll explain that to him, but basically 
I'll break easier. So what will happen is, is I'll be, during the day, I'll get triggered and I'll drop and then I'll get better. But then something small will happen, I'll drop again and it keeps sort of going like this. So what I've learned to once again explain is like, in that day, after the fact, when I'm feeling a bit better, I'll have to say, and I have to force myself, hey, I don't want to talk about it right now. I am feeling a bit better, but I don't have much, you know, there's not much give here. I, I'm, 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 in, I'm in a very vulnerable state right now. I'm feeling weakened and just trusting that the person will get it. The concept of a window of tolerance is, is your ability to handle things on any given day. You've got a certain amount of like mental space, energy, spoons, right? Whatever, whatever you call it. And some days you're higher, some days you're lower. And if there's life stress, your window of tolerance drops and certain things will fall outside of that. So if you're in a massive car crash, that'll probably fall outside of your window of tolerance, no matter how good a day you're having, no matter how stable you are mentally. But let's say your, your boss messages you and says, hey, you know, in, in three hours, we need to have a meeting. No context, no nothing. That's stressful, right? Now, if you're having a good day, that might fall inside your window of tolerance because you're, you, you know, you're okay, you understand, you, you know that your boss does that sometimes, yada, yada, nothing's wrong, whatever. But if you're having a bad day, the, the stress, the anxiety, the worry of that meeting might be outside of your window of tolerance and that might cause you to have a breakdown. So the lesson here with that is, is, is developing the introspective ability to understand where you are, where your window of tolerance is and what you can therefore manage. With, with all that in mind, I, I, I have to say that the open and honest communication when I'm in a good mental state is, is vital because you know, like I, it, it helps people to understand. And that's part of the reasons why I, I do these podcasts as well. Cause I can, you know, and I will link people this episode and be like, Hey, this is how I'm feeling in a sort of a more thought out presentation. Cause if you think about it, I'm not talking and interacting with anyone directly. I'm talking to you, dear listener, but I'm not having to respond back or deal with the social pressures of talking about something as personal as being triggered in this regard because that has a way of sort of derailing conversation or turning it back on me in a way that I'm not that comfortable with or not able to deal with in the moment ongoing by talking about it here I can express to you how I'm feeling without answering questions that I'm not yet ready to answer or not able to answer or not expecting to answer does that sort of make sense so with that in mind if you have a similar struggle to what I'm talking about here with being triggered, with being impacted in that sort of sense, feel free to share this episode with the person um, in the sense of saying, hey, this is sort of how I feel. You know, Zach talks about it like this. I feel a bit like that, but I'm more down this path, yada, yada, yada. Phrase it for yourself. Or alternatively, use the example I've got and write someone a letter or a voice memo or some sort of way to sort of do like a communication with them that enables you to get out your thoughts without having the impact back if it's something challenging. The final thing I want to address is that people will trigger me. They'll say or do or situations will be around that are confronting. The the, 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 the thing that I'd like to emphasize to, to you guys and to, to them in person and everyone is, is that it's not their fault in the sense that I don't want people to change the topic of conversations. I don't want people to not use words or not make jokes or anything like that. Um, trying to predict what will trigger me. Like if you've read my book under the influence or any of the stuff I've done online, you'll get an idea of what you might think triggers me. 
but you're probably going to be wrong. Um, what triggers me is internal. It depends on the life stresses and a whole variety of stuff inside my brain. So I can't suggest to you things that would trigger me. However, there are certain people and certain environments and certain things that have happened in certain environments that do trigger me. When those people and environments and situations are present, I'll make it abundantly clear to those people that this is this is a no-go for me, in the sense that I'm not going to go here or do these things and risk being triggered. However, you know, and then then hopefully the person that's on the other side of that will understand you to the relationship we have and yada yada that okay, this is the this is this is the confines of where Zach's not happy talking or being around, and then I expect those people to respect that. However, in general, I don't expect the world to change. You know, like I said, I'm a part of a, part of a gym and part of a bunch of you know, social stuff, whatever. I wouldn't want my presence to limit discussions or jokes or games or anything like that. Just because there's a chance that I might be triggered or the people have listened or watched or anything like that of what I'm doing. However, if I do, if I am close enough, like, you know, if something does happen in a social setting, I won't try and change the social setting. I'll just excuse myself because it's on me. You know, like there's this, there's this sort of push that, you know, we should make the world a safe place for people that are triggered. <sighs> to some extent, I agree, but the vast majority extent, I don't agree. It's, it's on the person who's dealing with the internal issues to make the changes, to avoid situations and to just speak up to the individuals in their life when they actually can and do matter. I'm not going to try and change the world to keep myself safe. It's not realistic. Um, because you can't do it for a start, and then trying to do so will cause conflict and drama that isn't necessary. What is necessary is, is that for the people that do matter, for the people that are around me a lot, for the people that have said things that trigger me, I'll address it, and then we can come to an understanding on that regard. So like I said, if that's you, if that's the case, use this use this um, podcast video, whatever, as a starting point, as a trigger point or even just as a motivation for you to have the conversation with the people in your life. Unfortunately, it's on you to do the healing and the recovery and the therapy on no one else. So with that in mind, I've been making my way through my first book, Under the Influence, reading it to you. Um, Under the Influence is the story of my childhood, the story of my past, and I'm basically almost through it. For the people that are benefiting the videos, I've lost my old glasses, so I'm um, back on the new glasses. <laughs> I've lost my new glasses, back on the old glasses. Anyway, um, Under the Influence is the story of my childhood. I'm almost through it. I'm releasing everything I do for free online because I believe that that information that can help other people should be free. But if you're liking the podcast, if you want to support it, you can grab yourself a copy of the book um, or you can support me. And the best way you can support me is via Patreon. So I've got the promos at the start and the end of the podcast, but basically it lets me know how much money I've got coming in from online sources and that enables me to plan my life better. So if you like what I'm doing, if you think I'm worth a buck a month, support me that amount. If you think I'm worth more, please do. If you think I'm worth less, don't. <laughs> All right. This chapter is called Death. Despite everything that happened, I love my father and still do. To this day, my biggest regret is not connecting with him more. I do not forgive him for what he put my brother and I through but I regret not trying to get to know him on a deeper level, particularly as an adult. When I talk about my childhood, people always say something along the lines of, but you were just a child and he was an adult. You should have done more. It was his fault that your relationship fell apart. Yes, he was the adult and I was the child, but that truth does not change my role and my actions towards him. 
I still made the choice to limit contact. I still made the choice to become emotionally distant. I still made the choice to stop seeing him altogether for years. Despite all that he was and all that he did, I still have played a role in our relationship or lack thereof. It would be very convenient to blame it all on him, and for years I did. I stopped seeing him almost completely when I moved out of home at around 15 years of age. The only extended contact I had with him was for the, for the following eight years was at family gatherings. These interactions were very shallow. He would ask how my work and my schooling was going. I would reply that they were going good. I would not elaborate or go into any depth, and he did not inquire further either. I always felt that asking, that despite asking, he didn't really care. It almost felt as if he was going through the motions check, and checking the boxes, so to speak. Ask about work? Check. Inquire about schooling? Check. Reminisce about something trivial that happened years ago? Check. I responded the same way back. Ask about his artwork? Check. Inquire about his health? Check. Mention something minor about my life? Check. Very dry and procedural. It was like we were both too afraid of each other, or that we were too closed off to want to engage in any social, in any conversation of actual substance. So we both played the game of father and son. At least that's what it felt like at the time. It may have been for the best because we remained civil. <laughs> Despite my best attempts to distance myself from him, I still felt so much anger. I would say to myself, inwardly as well as affirm it to those around, my dad is nothing to me. I feel nothing. I don't care about him in the slightest. I would say it like a mantra, repeating it over and over. One stage, I even thought how it was true. I even thought it was true. There was an overwhelming, uh, what, nah, there's an overwhelming place of emotional turmoil festering deep within my soul. Tapping to that area still releases a lot of anger, rage, and emotional instability. It's almost ironic that somebody I had blocked off so significantly from all aspects of my life can still have such a massive emotional draw upon me. I suppose it makes sense, though. There's a reason I blocked it all out. You'd only really push something down for so long until it eventually resurfaces. Nothing stays hidden forever. Maybe talking to him on a shallow level was the most our relationship could handle at the time. Back then, I probably would have snapped if I had to explain how I truly felt to him. I don't know what I would have happened, or how far I would have gone, and how he would have taken it, but I didn't want to put that upon him. I still cared enough about him to not direct all my anger and emotional issues towards him. I wanted to both knock him out and hug him. Instead, I turned inwards, resorting to drinking, cutting, and other forms of self-harm as an outlet. I became lost inside myself, and only, and only now am rediscovering who I am. On the other hand, maybe he shouldn't have heard, maybe he should have heard it. Maybe it would have helped us both. Did you even want me? Am I an accident, or did you plan to raise me in this environment? If so, why? What kind of father would risk the safety of their children like you did? What kind of person would take their child on drug deals, leaving them unattended for hours whilst they got high? Why would you invite those people into your house when we were around? Were you really that desperate? Or did having other people near you make you feel like you had less of a problem? That somehow their presence meant you weren't so bad as you actually were? Or you are as a pathetic, worthless addict? Do you think you could hide it from me? Do you think I didn't know what was going on? It's fairly obvious when I can easily find the pills, powder, and needles. Quick hint, putting a towel over a bong is not an effective way to hide it. It's like I didn't accidentally prick myself or get curious and try some of the pills. Who knows? That would have been that might have made my childhood more enjoyable. Maybe then I would have understood your motives. I hate the fact that I care about you. I hate the fact that you still hold so much power over me. I hate that somehow every interaction, every moment of my life is tainted by your influence. I hate that I still love you. Perhaps it's best that we've just kept to pleasantries. I don't know if I could have handled his response to any of that. In the last year of his life, I was substantially in a better place emotionally. I met the love of my life to whom I was engaged. I'd successfully completed my university degree and was working in my chosen field. It was her influence that inspired me to re-establish a relationship with Dad. 
I began to visit him in his house for a couple of hours at a time. He was more than happy to have me around, and to his credit, he never made any reference to my lack of visits. To be fair, I didn't bring up his lack of visits either. It started slowly. I began visiting him for a couple of hours randomly here and there, and it became until it became more consistent. He was awkward at first, but eventually we were able to open up a bit to each other more. His health and living conditions seemed to mirror each other. I remember one of my first visits back to his house, being surprised at just how bad his living conditions had become. His hoarding had just gotten worse and worse as he aged. Similarly, his overall health was fading as well. He seemed increasingly frail as the year progressed. His weight had dropped substantially and he was coughing and wheezing constantly. I was surprised by how fragile he'd become. I was wanting to connect with him more, so that year I decided to invite him to two major events of my life. The first was my martial arts grading. Having trained for over five years by that point, I was finally about to perform my black belt grading. I invited everyone I believed would want to come and support me. This included Dad. On the day, I was so nervous that I had not even considered the possibility of him turning up. However, just before I began, he called my name. Surprised by his presence, I went over and hugged him. He wished me luck and said that he believed in me. The grading was one of the most physically challenging days of my life. There were many times in which I was knocked to the ground and struggled to get up due to sheer exhaustion. At one point, my coach had to slap me into focus, demanding that I continue. After I successfully completed my grading, I found out that Dad had seriously contemplated walking up to my coach and demanded that he go easier on me. I'm glad that he didn't go through with it, but it was nice to know that he was in my corner, so to speak. I was happy. After Dad's passing, I was looking through his appointment diary. In it, he'd marked down the date of my grading. But what was really touching, however, was the piece of loose paper that sat next to it. On the paper, he told me how he'd felt about me. The memory of seeing you in action on Sunday will rate as one of the top memories that I'll cherish forever. I felt very proud of watching you fight with the heart of a warrior. Your teacher said that you are strong and I agree, body and mind. Zach, I also thought you were very brave. Congratulations on your ascension to black level. Well done. With love and respect, Dad. I burst into tears instantly. Despite, a, despite all of our past, I still loved him. I was so grateful for those words. He was never one to express himself emotionally, and even though it was only written down, it was one of the most thoughtful things he'd done for me. I'm so grateful that he was present for that moment of my life. The second major event was my engagement party. It was lovely to see my dad interacting with family members from both sides that had not seen him for years. It ser served as a pseudo-reunion for him to re-engage with many people that were once a significant part of, my li of his life. It brought me lots of joy to see him there with a smile on his face, happy with the successes of his son. Unlike when I was younger, I did not care how he presented himself. By this stage of my life, I knew that the people around me would only judge me by my actions, not by the actions of my parents. Regardless, I was pleasantly surprised when he arrived clean-shaven and dressed appropriately. Even more surprising was that he was sober. At the time, I didn't realise just how sick my father really was. Granted that by that stage he'd been in and out of hospital multiple times for chest issues, it hadn't quite dawned on me that he was close to passing. Oddly enough, I couldn't imagine him dying. However, looking back on the photos of that day, Dad seemed very sick. Gaunt, pale face, and very skinny. In addition, there were many photos of him with different people, but they all shared two things in common. Dad is in the same location for each of them, and he's always sitting down with the others around him. It's clear now that he was so unwell that he struggled to freely move about. A month later, at Dad's funeral, many people shared their happiness at his attendance in the engagement party. It was almost as if catching up with him then filled a hole in their hearts that he didn't even know was empty. That they didn't even know was empty. I'm eternally grateful that everyone got a chance to catch up with him before he passed away. The week following Dad's death was one of the most stressful of my, of my life. Due to the fear of continued theft and defilement of his home and possessions, I had to act quickly. So I began the arduous and emotionally depressing task of sorting through his numerous possessions. Given the sheer volume of stuff that Dad had accumulated over the years, the task was completed surprisingly quickly. We soon realised that there was basically only junk in his possession. 
interlaced with a variety of artwork, some randomly hidden jewellery, and hundreds of dollars in drugs. We took was emotionally significant and left the rest of the vultures to scavenge through. Within a week, some cleaners from the government came and cleared the house of everything, filling up at least two skips in the process. They replaced by carpet and blinds. They replaced carpet and blinds and then disinfected and perfumed the whole place, getting it ready for the next tenant. To our surprise, Dad had taken out funeral insurance almost a year earlier. By that stage, he couldn't justify following the doctor's orders to quit smoking and just gave just to give himself a little more time. So he made the choice to die sooner, doing what he loved. Thankfully, he had, had planned ahead. He knew he was on the way out and wanted to at least help us with the burial costs. We were all grateful for that. Around the time, in his diary, he wrote, I'd rather die earlier than change myself and live by their rules. Dad's funeral was quite stressful, and it felt like everyone around me was falling apart. As always, I took on the role of the primary organiser, the rock that everyone could rely on. Not sure if I took the role, took on the role or, and people let me, or had to play the role because the others need me, needed me. Either way, it felt like a fairly symbolic end to my dad's life, with him not there and me trying to hold things together for the rest of the family. Regardless, it gave me no time to grieve. From the moment I found out he was gone until he was in the ground, I was on. Working to sort through his house, li- liaising with the insurance company, raising for the celebrant and coordinating with the funeral home left no time to myself. His death only really hit a couple of days after. He was the first close person to me that had passed. Up until that point, the only people I knew had died were old and distant relatives that I scarcely knew. It was sad, but I wasn't personally affected by it. I thought that Dad's death would be the same. After all, I never felt that close to him and never felt like I cared about him that much. I couldn't have been more wrong. The reality of his death is still hitting home. Whoever says that time heals all wounds is surely mistaken. His passing has left a mark on me that no other event has ever done. It made death real. Perhaps it was the naivety of youth, but up until that point I'd never quite understood or really cared about death. It was something which you only considered when you were older. Besides, no one's going to die, right? Up until that point, death was only an intellectual construct rather than an emotional reality. Since my dad's death, I've been trying to spend more toilet time with my family, because I, know how ju- I now know just how frail life can be. I feel like dad's passing has freed up some mental space that I didn't realise was constantly engaged. I'm now, for the first time in my life, finally able to look forward and see a light seeing a possibility of a future that I want to make for myself, not one that's just a byproduct of my childhood experiences. I feel like I'm finally freeing myself from the self-imposed shackles and rules that are no longer of any use to me. Most importantly, I've had the stark realisation that this is the one life I have. The past is the past and it should stay there. There's no point in hanging on to it any longer. I do not wish... I do wish that I had got to know him a bit better. I wish that I had sat down with him and talked to him as an adult, face-to-face with an open heart, and mind. I should have tried to have deep conversations with him. I wish I'd asked him more than I wish I'd asked him more than just how are you whilst trying to finish the conversation as soon as possible. Perhaps a more direct approach would be to provide would have provided some of the answers that I'm so desperately craving. I would have loved to explore the inspiration behind his incredible art. Confronted him directly about his addiction, told him everything, my hopes, my dreams, my fears and my aspirations. I wish we could have played one more game of chess against him. Hell, I even wish we could have spe- shared a joint together. Thinking back, it's easy for me to focus on only the negatives of the situation. He had his own demons to contend with. I know he loved us. It was in the small th- and the unspoken things. Whenever we were driving, he would constantly let me play my music, never complaining. He would offer advice when we asked and always wanted to provide for us, even with the limited resources he had. Despite all of the trauma issues and damage that he caused, I still miss him. The this was th- this 
that 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 was cha- um, a chapter from the book Under the Influence: Reclaiming My Childhood. You can read the entire book as a paperback, ebook, and audio book. I'll put a link down below so you can grab yourself a copy if you want to support it. But most of the chapters up online now, so you can make your way through um, the chapters on my website. But like I said, if you want to support what I'm doing here, grab yourself a copy. It's 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 been an interesting few years. I think it's been maybe five or six years now since dad's passing and it's it's still impacting me in the sense that the trauma caused is still impacting me i'm still being triggered by things i'm still new memories are still popping up i'm still feeling this combination and complex anger and emotionality towards and against him and you know a desire to wish i had have done more that he had have done more the the, the disappointment all of that sort of stuff one of the main things that is coming to me now more and more is just an acceptance and understanding of his situation in the sense that he he was just a man. He was just a person dealing with his own issues. And the more I found out about his past, the more I feel like his struggles caused him to act and do in a certain way. I look at my mental state and my trauma and know that he had similar issues himself. And I can see how with less support, less care, coming from a different time, a different age, all that sort of stuff, his ability to cope would be different, would be reduced, would, would, would be impacted. And, you know, this isn't to say that I forgive him for the stuff that had happened. It's more that I understand the human behind the story. He, he's just a person. But, you know, when you're growing up, you look to your parents as, you know, pseudo-mythological figures. They they're everything and then you get older and you step back and you grow and you learn that they're just people flawed people but their flaws are caused by their own pasts and their own parents and their own upbringings and their own culture and all of that sort of stuff so i'm sort of more understanding it i still do wish that i had time to speak to him in a way that i you know didn't do i regret that profusely and it's, it's interesting, you know, if you follow me along, you know that I'm into lucid dreaming and all of that sort of stuff. And and one of one of the things that semi-regularly occurs for me, one of the dream signs that I know that I'm dreaming is dad will be alive. And the, the plot of the dream, and I think I've had this maybe five to ten times since his passing, but it will be he will have died in the dream world, then he will have come back and his death will be explained away for whatever reason. And then there's another couple of months with him. So it's like he died, then he comes back, and I get to sort of, you know, wish fulfill all of these things. Um, so it's interesting that my, my my mental state, my psyche, keeps bringing that up as a theme. And it's even more interesting to me that I'm so willing to accept that that's just okay, in, in the sense that it doesn't cause me to realize that I'm dreaming. I just accept the premise that he's back alive again. Um, maybe I just have a lot of healing that I need to go through. I don't know. Either way, if you like that, you can grab yourself a copy. Um, it's a good way to support. And if you relate to it and you want to talk to me about it, you can connect with me via my website or on social media, um, zachary-phillips.com. And I'm on social everywhere at Zach P. Phillips. Catch ya. I believe that information relating to mental health should be accessible by everyone. And that's why I release everything I do for free. Your support helps make this a possibility. Head over to patreon.com slash Zach P. Phillips to find out how you can help out. Together we can make a difference.